We're in a, a series at the moment uh, in church on, on Sunday mornings, going through the book of Daniel together, uh, lion-hearted. And I want to I want to do something different uh, this morning. I was all set uh, to share on on this passage until uh, the next chapter until uh, yesterday, and um, just feel like I'm carrying something else that I'd love to. Uh, to share with us today, which, quite frankly, is annoying because the PowerPoint for the other thing was great. I'd worked out how I could get the hand to write the words, and it was... But there we go. You know, that's fine. That's absolutely fine, and we'll come back to that at, at some point. Um, but I really want to share uh, something uh, with us today, something that I feel God uh, has spoken to me and I think might be saying to us, so I ask you to, to hold it and to, to weigh it up. Uh, and uh, then we'll, we'll try and respond together today. So uh, yesterday afternoon, um, I took the dog for a walk. Uh, went up for a walk up Caerphilly Mountain. And uh, how many of us know the top of Caerphilly Mountain? Yeah, how many of us know the uh, burger van that's now a burger place? Up if you're not used to Caerphilly Mountain, uh, if you're not used to mountain walking, Caerphilly uh, is great because 90% of it is the drive up uh, and you're at the peak very, very quickly. Uh, but if you know it, you sort of park and then cross the road and you almost take a sort of right angle, don't you, uh, to get to the top. Uh, the, f the first bit, the, the, the peak is kind of a, a round mound that you get to, but the first of all is just a straight path. Uh, and I was walking along that, that path through the dog and uh, happened to look over and just see Cardiff, because the, the view is incredible up there, isn't it? You see right down to the bay, uh, right across the city, and then at the top you can see over to Caerphilly, you can see parts of the Garth Mountain, you can see right over to the heads of the valleys, and uh, all that kind of, a great place to stand and, and pray. And I don't know about you, but those places sometimes just give you a fresh perspective, don't they? Uh, sometimes down on the ground everything seems so big and difficult, but up there you just realize how many people there are, and God is looking after it all quite happily. It's all, it's all going on. It's all happening. And so I was walking up there and um, praying. It was something I'd said to the blessed group, the discipleship group. I'm, I'm, I had a busy week, but I wanted to make time to pray. And so I was praying. And as I stopped, there's a bench on that sort of first path that you get to where people sit and look over Cardiff before you see Caerphilly on the other side. Uh, and I was just looking over the, the city and a question struck me. I don't know if you've ever thought this. It seems to hit me when I see big crowds of people. I don't know if you get this at big events or airports, and you just realize there's, a, there's quite a few people on, on the planet. And this question struck me. What will it take to reach a city? We read, don't we, in the scriptures of times when Jesus' ministry affects a whole town people. A Samaritan village that was impacted three days with Jesus and the course of the history of that town is forever different. We read in the book of Acts of times when a, a city was shaken. What will it take God to shake this city? I don't know if you ever carry that. I've, I carry that. Because after all that we've done and after all that we've tried we need more of God, don't we? We need to see God move in power. And so I'm stood there thinking about all this and, and trying to pray about all of this. And it was an odd day yesterday. I don't know if you noticed this. It's the kind of day where my mum used to describe it in this way, um, that it looks like somebody's painted the picture but forgot to put the sky in. You know, they're going to come back later and make it. It was just white, really odd kind of 
cloud, and that brings a sort of a strange atmosphere sometimes, doesn't it, when it's just sort of white and murky at the top of your vision. Um, and I was aware that there was this bird that was hovering and flying. And because of the way the clouds were and the light was working, it, it kind of came and went. It sort of came and disappeared behind the clouds. And I don't know, something in my spirit was reminded of the Holy Spirit. And we're told in the beginning that he, he hovers over creation. It's a word that describes a, a bird kind of brooding over her nest. The Holy Spirit involved in creation and, and waiting, active and alert. And just like this, this bird was coming and going. We have seasons, don't we, where we're so aware of our need for God. And pressing in daily, God, what do you want to say to me today? Well, how do you want to use me today? And in other seasons of our lives that can be quite quiet, quite prayerless. But he's still there. Whether we're looking at him, aware of him or not, he's, he's still hovering, he's, he's still waiting, he's still present. And those words from Malachi came to me very, very strongly, that the son of righteousness, S-O-N, the person, the son of righteousness, will rise with healing in his wings. An incredible promise. Almost the last words of the Old Testament before this 400 years of silence, no other prophecies before Jesus is born. The Old Testament kind of ends with that dot, dot, dot. The promise that Elijah, or the ministry of Elijah, is going to return, which of course it does with John the Baptist, but it kind of pauses then that the whole of our scriptures hangs on that hinge, doesn't it? That promise, that, that waiting. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. The word for wings in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, is kanap. It describes the wingspan of something, but it's also the word that we get canopy from, kind of a, a covering, and it can be used to describe the boundary or, or the edge of something. So for those of us who are here today who hold this hope, who live in this promise of Jesus, we're covered in this canopy, his righteousness, his healing covers us. That just really blessed my socks off, if that's the theological expression that I should be using at this point. Just really blessed me. And so then I'm walking on from there and going up and around and overlooking Caffili. Uh, love Caffili. I don't know if you saw the stats in the census that came out recently. And so the state of, of faith, among other things, in our nation, but Apparently, Caffili is the most atheistic place in our country. So I was praying, God, what will it take to shake this city and bless this city? Now, if you walk around uh, Caffili Mountain, you get to this certain point where somebody's built these sort of stone seats. Do you know these? They're sort of round, um, and they're, they're brilliantly built. I don't know who, who put them there or when, uh, but I, I discovered that when I, I was sat in this sort of stone seat thing, uh, I, I was sat there for a while, and this was all going on. I was thinking and praying. I was aware of how warm I felt all of a sudden, because it wasn't a warm day yesterday. And I was like, oh, has the temperature changed? And so I, I stood up, and this cold hits you again. So I, I sat back down, and I realized something, that I was being held in a place of, of safety. And I'd been sat there praying about all kinds of, of dif different situations. Uh, some of you know my 
Some of you have been praying. My mum's not very well at the moment, so not very well at all. So I've been praying about that. And there was a sense in which God wanted to say there's two of these stone things. And as I sat there, it, it felt like his hands were just there. And it felt like God wanted to say, you don't have to know how it all holds together. You just have to know that you're held. You just have to know that you're held. And I wanted to share that today because for some of us, there are all kinds of questions that we're asking, all kinds of struggles and battles, some of which you'll share with others and others will be aware of. Others we, we won't have a clue about. You won't have told a single person. You don't have to know how it all holds together. You just have to know that you're held. Paul's words to the church, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. The love of God. Christ Jesus our Lord is a long list of things that he lists there. Can struggle or suffering or persecution or nakedness or danger or sword. He says we're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. The Roman Empire claimed Paul's life. Nobody was going to care about that. He was just another rebel, just another traitor. His life on the grand scale of things was worth nothing, and yet he could say, but nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing in all creation. Nothing in life, nothing in death, nothing in the spiritual authorities. It doesn't have to all make sense because we're held. <coughs> and that's Sometimes it's the, it's the most simple things that God has got to remind us of, isn't it? And sometimes they're the most powerful things that the Lord reminds us of. Sometimes he'll take us up on a mountain just to remind us of something that we knew, but we just needed to know was true there and then. You're held. Not loosely, not casually, not incidentally. Nothing can separate you. Know that you're held. And so as I was sat there praying and just receiving some of that, this story uh, came to mind from uh, Luke's Gospel. And I just want to walk us through that story in the time we've got together today and then uh, leave time for us to respond together. Uh, it comes from uh, Luke chapter 8. You might want to look it up. Uh, Luke chapter 8. We're going to pick it up at verse, I think it's, I'm gonna, I'll look it up because I'll get the number wrong. Luke chapter 8, uh, starting at verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Uh, then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So in this crowd of people that are waiting for Jesus, there's one person who is desperate and eager to meet with Jesus, a man called Jairus. Now before we go on in this story, it is remarkable that a synagogue ruler would come and throw himself at the feet of this person, of this Jesus, of, of this rabbi. 
In Jewish culture, rabbis are spotted early on in life. They're potentially seen. Uh, all Jewish boys are sent to kind of rabbi school to be taught the ways of Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then out of that, the brightest and the best are selected. And they go on for further training with a rabbi. Uh, it's meant to be a great season of their lives. Apparently, one of the first things that a rabbi does is to take a, a slate or a stone and to smear it with honey and to give it to each kid and, and to tell them to lick it clean and then say, because I want you to know the law is sweet and I want you to love the law like you'd love honey. So these people grow up kind of around rabbis and, and learn their ways and follow them and Everything that the rabbi does then is handed over to one of them who will take over the rabbi school. Jesus has not gone through this process. Jesus is not an f- officially recognized rabbi, uh, which is interesting because when people come to him and talk up to him about how can you do the things that you do, that's an incredible admission to make. We know that God is with you, but somehow you're outside of the system, and there's some things that you do and say that completely outside of our understanding, and yet he spoke with authority. And so the pressure on Jairus to not come to Jesus, despite Jesus being his only hope, his his last hope, is absolutely incredible. And he comes, and he doesn't just have a little chat with Jesus. In this public way, he throws himself at Jesus' feet. I've never done that. I don't know if you've thrown yourself at someone's feet. If you've ever been so desperate that you just wanted to plead with somebody for something, that you've actually knelt before them. It'd be remarkable for anybody to do this, but for Jairus to do it shows us how, how desperate he is. That hunger for Jesus. I'm losing my daughter. She's 12 and she's dying. Jesus, if you don't come, Jesus, if you don't help, I wonder what hunger we come with to God today. If I'm honest, sometimes it takes a real point of need in my life before I feel that sense of hunger. I was talking to somebody a while ago who was really struggling with one specific issue and just said to me one day, I was asking the Lord, why don't you just take it away, God? And really felt God answer them by saying, because if you didn't talk to me about that, we wouldn't be talking about anything. Do we have that desperate need for Jesus? It's very easy, isn't it, in our culture and our society to kind of fit Jesus, squeeze him into our lives and make him part of what's going on rather than throwing ourselves at his feet and saying, Jesus, if you don't come, if you don't move, if you don't speak, if you don't touch me, he pleads with him. What's amazing is Luke records, as Jesus was on his way. There's no discussion. Jesus doesn't ask, well, tell me about your faith. or Tell me about your stock or your story. Or Jesus goes. Jesus responds to the man's hunger. I can't stand here today and say there's a simple formula. There really isn't. But what I do know is that hunger seems to attract Jesus. That heart cry, that audacious, almost shameless cry, seems to attract Jesus. So Jesus was on his way. And the crowds almost crushed him. And then Luke introduces us to somebody else who was there that day. 
a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding, this is interesting, for 12 years, the same period of time as Jairus' daughter being ill, but no one could heal her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding around you and pressing against you. They love Peter sometimes. Jesus, who didn't touch you? I mean, we're all, we're all bumping up against you. Jesus says, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Isn't that amazing? Jesus recognized that this touch was different. It wasn't accidental or incidental. There was, there was a request in the touch. There was a longing, somehow a, a prayer, that, a, almost a wordless prayer had been offered in the action of reaching out. Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Again, Jesus' power seems to flow towards hunger. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. Again, at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So there's a a woman there that day who, in this crowd around Jesus, is pushing and struggling. She's got her her own needs. She couldn't be more different to Jairus in many, many ways. Uh, We're told that in the old version, she's she's got an issue of blood. She's struggling with bleeding, and that brought with it all kinds of, of complications. Physically, it meant that she would be weakened by that loss of blood. Every day, waking up, bathing, dressing, struggling through life. Culturally, there were all kinds of further complications. Uh, The law of the day meant that she would be ritually, ceremonially unclean, so disqualified from the temple or the synagogue. So interestingly, Jairus may have come up against this woman at some point and said, I'm sorry, but in the state you're in, you, you can't. You can't come in. We don't know what that, how that went, but presumably that was part of her own experience. And interestingly, in Leviticus, it said that anybody who touched her would also be unclean. Are you glad we live in the New Testament times when Jesus has, has done it all for us? We didn't have to go through ritual upon ritual upon ritual to, to get here today. Just had to get the kids up on time and presentably dressed and out of the house and I know that's not an easy challenge sometimes, so well done if you've done that. But we didn't have to go through ritual upon ritual. Jesus has has paid it all, done it all. But before the cross, she knew, I don't fit in. Something wrong with me, something different about me. And she lived with that for 12 years. Can you imagine that? There's something about me I can't help that means I'm excluded. can't even touch anyone else because then they're excluded as well. So she's pressing through the crowd. This weak woman, struggling for energy and strength, pressing, pushing, struggling to get in. Now, why did she touch the edge of his cloak? I mean, how did she know that would offer any hope at all? 
Well, we were thinking earlier, weren't we, about those words, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Now, the traditional Jews, and, and, and rabbis especially, uh, wore something called a talit uh, or a talus. And, uh, they kind of wore it over their shoulders. Somebody bought me this uh, a while ago, and apparently it was ordered uh, from, from Israel. I just, just remembered when Linda was praying, I had one in my office. Uh, and uh, they, they would wear it if I can. It's really easy to wear. Uh, over their shoulders. Uh, and when they wanted to pray, they would lift it uh, over their heads. And it kind of looks, when you do that, like, like a canopy, doesn't it? It reminds them, like we teach children to put their hands together so they're not fidgeting and close their eyes so they're focusing. It kind of gave them that, that focus, that canopy, that, that covering. Does anybody want to guess what they called the hem, the edge of the cloak. They call them the wings of the cloak. There's a group of people around the time of Jesus' coming who were getting hungry for God. And they were searching the Old Testament prophecies. And one of the things that's interesting is that they came to realize that all these multiple prophecies were pointing towards one person. And there was a group in Israel that began to translate that verse. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings as one day the Messiah will come with healing in his talent. It seems that somehow she picked up on this. And something in her said, if I can just touch the edge, the hem, the corner of his robe. Interestingly, for Jesus, he does not want to leave it there. He wants to know who she was. He wants her to know, you matter to me. I don't want you just at the edge of my robe, but I want us to talk. I want you to hear from my lips, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Isn't that lovely that Jesus, it wasn't just about power, it was about the person. But she, she presses through to know Jesus and, and to touch the edge of his robe. And again, I wonder today, are we pressing in to know Jesus? Are we trying to push through other distractions, other limitations? Are we, are we pushing through? I was thinking about this this morning while we were warming up musically together, and I don't want to embarrass or expose anyone here today, but sometimes when I see some people struggling physically just to get up I've walked through those doors of the porch. It just really blesses me that the, this, the effort, the physical effort you, you push through to get here today. And honestly, I can say to you, there have been times I've thought, I hope I have that hunger to meet with God's people. I hope I have that faithfulness when I reach, reach your age. It's such a blessing to see that. Are we, are we pushing in? There's a phrase that's going to come up later in this passage about do not bother Jesus anymore. How much are we bothering Jesus? How much are we, are we pushing in to know him? You know, it's true for all of us, isn't it, that, that none of us wake up one day and think, I'm going to take my foot off the accelerator of my faith. But we do somehow just, just stop pushing, stop pressing. None of us wake up one day and think, i I want to be in this really ambivalent place with Jesus where I don't really know what's happening with all that kind of stuff anymore. And nobody designs it that way, but we just stop pushing. 
Nobody wakes up one Sunday and thinks, I don't want to go to church this month. Well, some people might. But generally, people just stop pushing in to meet with him. Is there that sense that we have to touch him? The question that Jesus asks, who touched me? We gather so often, don't we, to, to meet together, to worship together. What if Jesus was to ask, who touched me? Who had that hunger? Not that in every gathering there's only one, far from it, but, but who is reaching out today? That's not the end of, of this story. I'm going to pick up just, just the end rather briefly, and then we're going to have time to, to respond and, and pray together. So Jesus is looking at this woman. And of course, this moment has delayed Jesus. He had a rather urgent invitation. My daughter is dying. So for Jairus, while all this is going on, he has a very different experience of it. He's thinking, come on. It's great that somebody's touched you. It's great that someone's been healed, but I need this. And so while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. It's too late. These are... These are the worst words any parent could hear. This is the greatest fear, isn't it? Realized of any parent. It's too late. For Jesus, however, it is not too late. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Do not be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When they arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in except Peter, James, and John, and the child's father and mother, Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand, said, My child, get up. Literally in the Greek, wake up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. I guess Jesus knew that becoming a local celebrity is not what this 12-year-old was, was going to need. They need time to process all, all that had happened, time to grow in all that had happened. So Jesus, in this moment, turns to Jairus when he's just received the worst news he could possibly receive, and he says, don't be afraid. It's amazing, isn't it, how fear infects us? A fear of what might happen or what has happened can hold us back. Don't, don't be afraid, Jesus says. Just believe. Now, in the Greek, it's a, a present tense, but an aorist tense, which means keep on believing. And I wonder in that moment if Jesus is almost wanting to point to this woman who's just been healed. Don't, don't be afraid, Jairus. Look at what has just happened. Just keep on believing that I can do what you cannot, that I can do what no, no doctors, no human power can do, that I can bring healing, I can bring hope, I can bring help. Keep believing. Keep going. Don't, don't let it go. How many of us at times of fear just let it go? Don't do it, Jesus says. Keep believing. And one thing that, that really struck me was I was reading just for, for another reason, reading another passage uh, from Matthew's Gospel, 
uh, where Matthew records this. This is Matthew 14. Sorry, they'd usually be up there, but I'll just read it for us now. Matthew 14, verses 35 and 36. It says, when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all who were ill to him, and they begged him to let those who were ill just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So there's, there's something now that's happening that's beyond this woman's struggle, the woman's story. Uh, when Matthew records that event, the league records, it's in Matthew chapter 9, so it's before this moment. And somehow her faith, her story, her healing uh, has opened up something for others now. There's a, a sense of breakthrough. She touched the edge of Jesus' cloak and was healed, and now people are recognizing, I can do that as well. What will it take to reach a city? What if it takes just a touch of faith? This woman had no idea when she touched the edge of Jesus' cloak that this was going to somehow usher in a breakthrough that other people were going to discover. All who touched it in Matthew 14 were healed. For some of us here today, we've known something of the touch of Jesus on our lives. And I wonder if Jesus is just wanting to use that, just wanting to bless that. I grew up in a, not just a Christian home, but my dad was a minister. Some of you know my dad, he's writing a guest blog for us uh, at the minute, so you're getting some proper blogs at the moment. Enjoy it while you can. Uh, and uh, so I went to church since nine months before I was born and very much grew up understanding the gospel. I'd heard it from a very, very young age. I heard it a number of times. It was very, very familiar to me. And uh, When the time came, there was a, something of a natural step that I took to, to begin following Jesus for myself. What's funny about that is it leaves you, and maybe others here, with a similar experience. Uh, have you know those times when someone gets up and they, they tell a testimony, and it's so dramatic, and it's so powerful, and you kind of think, Jesus, should you have waited until I'd, not that I'd got any plans to become a drug dealer or a murderer, but if it had happened later, it would have sounded so much more dramatic. If, I, if I'm honest, some of the worst stuff I've ever done it was not before meeting Jesus. It was after it. And I've come back again and again to the cross. Jesus, if you don't clean me, if you don't heal me, if you don't help me. But because of that, sometimes we can feel like we've got a lesser story. All this woman did was to keep pressing in until she could touch Jesus' And then that became for others an access point, a hope for them, a story for them. So what's your story? Where have you reached out and touched Jesus? Or where has he reached out and touched you? Don't underestimate what Jesus can do with you. In what ways might Jesus be able to point to you and to say to somebody else, don't you be afraid? Come on, keep on believing. And it might not be the same as for others. You know, very often the process is different, isn't it? 
I think testimony has that power to, to, to raise, raise our expectation, to, to raise our faith. We read in the book of Revelation that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That when Jesus is testified to, when somebody is willing to share, Jesus has done this for me and made all the difference, somehow it creates that sort of atmosphere, that expectation level where people begin to think, well, if he did it for them, Not just the bloke who's paid to tell us what Jesus can do and is meant to believe all this stuff, but if he could do it for them, why not me? What will it take to reach a city? What if God's ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not ours? What if Jesus is just wanting to touch you? And then through that simple touch, Touch others in his name. Are we hungry for that? Is that what we want? It's what we need. Let's pause to pray together this morning. And for some of us here today, this will already be landing in different places. And you already know what the Lord has wanted to say to you today, but for others of us, there's still that sense of needing to push in, to, to press through. Because there's so much that distracts us, isn't there? Even right now. <laughs> there's a verse of scripture that's just on my heart. And Paul writes to the church to say, say to them, it, it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. To will and to do. Sometimes when we're not in that place of hunger, we wonder, well, how do I, how do I become more hungry? But I think we just bring our will to God. It's God who works in us to want different things, to reshape, to rewire to refashion our passions and if we're honest enough with God today just to sit with that for a moment and however uncomfortable that might feel and say God I I don't want you enough I don't love you enough I'm not hungry enough for you he is able to work in us both to will and to do that's his grace guys that's who he is